On this week's episode, Lee Griffin builds a scenario for no apparent reason. I guess that's what I'm getting at. I guess yeah. I built a scenario for no reason, but yeah, yeah. That, that's it. So Scott Boris becomes really confused. Spatially disoriented, like JFK, you know, not knowing which way is up. He thought he was completely in control of the plane, probably. I yeah. I thought he got I thought he got shot. JFK Jr., I'm sorry. Okay. Okay, now that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You had me uh, yeah. you had me really confused there for a minute. And I insult one of Scott Boris's many fine pets. Okay, Dude, Lewis Scott's dog runs out on the runway. Because he's an idiot. He's very, uh, very special. So he just he's running out on the runway, barking at the plane as it's trying to land. So you can't land on Lewis. No. You could. And then you could. Scott well, yeah, I mean it. Uh, could have hit that dog in the head a couple times. It would, yeah, he'd be fine. I, it wouldn't, wouldn't matter much. Yeah, and fine. then welcome to the season finale of the Far Aim podcast, where we are continuing Lee Griffin's master list of being a CFI, sending his students to private pilot check rides. Whatever I put it in the title, I can't remember what the title was. Uh, but we we hit our five email quota handedly. I uh, just want to read last episode. It's confusing because as we're recording this, it hasn't been released yet. But it's last episode. We actually uh, did a whole episode on Ward's email, but the, he was one of the ones who who emailed us on this. It said, uh, I'm sure you sure you are on your way to 100 emails for continuing the list of 72. If you could speed it up just a bit, not for me. I am Baby Boomer who listens to Led Zeppelin. But for your millennial listeners who probably have shorter developed attention spans, keep up the good work, Ward. thought that was, thought that was funny. It was the, That's hilarious. It was, yes. the, it was the funniest of uh, the email requests we got, so I thought I'd, I'd start that one off. And I believe we were five. We left off at uh, Wake Turbulence, which I believe we beat uh, to a pulp via Mr. Boris. There's copious amounts of questions. And um, so, yeah, we're starting at six. Uh, we don't really have a plan. What was that, Scott? That Wake Turbulence is scary stuff. It is scary stuff. Um, yeah, we're going to continue this. I have no idea how many we're going to get through. Uh, we're just going to try to keep it like, you know, hour hour and a half ish uh for part two here however many we get through and uh keep it going uh, i doubt we'll we'll hit that 72 yeah we don't want to shortchange the information aspect of it you exactly. know exactly we're trying to get the meaty meaty content from this one which is good and um yeah just a friendly reminder this is this is the season finale so um if you don't list a lot of some people i don't think listen to all the way to the end when we explain that but yeah we end at 50 uh, 50 a year, first 50 Thursdays. So uh, we will see you again at uh, the first Thursday of 2021, which we're excited for. Uh, the live component, robertberger.com live. Uh, if you can't wait and want to get some far aim podcast in your life during that three-week break of the three Thursdays, the 53 Thursdays in 2020, um, look it up if you don't believe me. Uh, we will be recording next year's stuff. Uh, so just, yeah, sign up for the email list and I'll uh, let you know when we're recording and how to set it up and all that jazz. All right, Mr. Griffin, start us off with number six of uh, your prep for the private pilot check ride. 
Yeah, sure thing. Yeah, first, just want to thank everybody for all you know all their feedback and everything, and uh, expressing a little more interest, you know, in the topic. Um, just trying to make it inclusive and in everything that I've seen um, when I've sat in on these oral exams with with uh, the twenty something odd students that I sent while I was professionally flight instructing for uh, for a few years. Um, so yeah, starting over with a land and hold short operations. Um, or LASO, L-A-H-S-O, um, is how you would kind of see it if you're looking at it phonetically, like in a, um, a notum, which is a notice to airmen. So land and hold short operations. Um, what it is, is it's a, a clearance issued by air traffic control advising you to land um, on, on a specific runway and then hold short of a intersecting runway or an intersecting taxiway. So this is basically a way of them being like, let's say you have two runways that that intersect like at a 90 degree angle and they're trying to use both of them um, just for like maybe one is reserved for it's more favorable with the winds. Um, so that'd be their primary. And then they have like a crossing one at 90 degrees that they would just use for approaches that wouldn't necessarily be suitable for landing, but they want to have open for uh, just their their clearance and, and what kind of they need to have uh, for their traffic spacing to be legal for air traffic control. There's a bunch of reasons, you know, if it's calm day and they just want to be efficient. So you could be issued a clearance to land on the runway, but then you they are expecting you to then stop of another designated runway uh, that's maybe, you know, perpendicular, you know, 90 degrees or so or a taxiway. Um, what this is, is just a clearance. And what a lot of people don't understand is they may do harm to the airplane, perhaps. Uh, let's say you you land and, you know, nobody's perfect um, and you land longer than you thought. You initially accepted the clearance to that you would land and then hold short of a runway. Hold short means stop short of uh, an intersecting runway or taxiway. And let's say you accepted that clearance and then you landed a little bit longer than you thought. And you're like, oh man, you know, I, I got to stop before this taxiway. You're going to stop before this runway or whatever the case may be. And you land long. So you just lock up the brakes and you blow tires or whatever. Or uh, let's say the approach doesn't look good. The way you need to think about it is although you've accepted this clearance, this is the way that the question is presented a lot of times. It's a scenario based. That's the FAA likes. It's presented like, okay, let's say you've accepted a land hold short clearance. And, you know, can, can you, a deer runs out on the runway. Can you go around? What do you, what do you guys think? That's the never way go around. Okay. Never do it. <laughs> Put that plane okay. on the ground. Okay. You've accepted a land and hold short clearance. Yeah, put it on the ground, run. lock up those brakes. Lock it up, lock them up. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. You probably could go around. I don't know. I, that was I guess my it first, depends. That was going to be my first question um, is how do go arounds work in that situation? Yeah. You can do, so in that case, you would be kind of exercising emergency authority. And, if, you know, so you, yes, you can go around. Let's say you've accepted a land and hold short clearance and that deer runs out of the runway or there's an airport vehicle that runs out on the runway, but you've experienced a power failure on shore final. Can you land on a parallel taxiway? Well, of course you can emergency authority. You can do whatever you need to do to meet the emergency. Under so you can land 91. on a taxiway. Well, you can do whatever you need to, to meet the emergency. Hmm. So that's, yeah, you know, folks. part 
what is that, 91151? I don't have anything in front of me, and it's been a long time, but um, yeah, emergency authority. You can do you can deviate from any of the rules to the extent necessary to meet the emergency. Well, that's so, like well, you have to like fill out a report or something. Like uh, if to, requested, if requested yeah. to. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Um, and there's a kind of a um there may be a <laughs> timeline. Bless you. There may be a timeline involved with when you would have to, you know, file that report. Now what uh, if you stuff escapes me? What if something what if you think you can't make the runway so you land on the taxiway uh-huh. and you fill out a report and the FAA still determines like that was a bad call. You shouldn't have done that. Or do they not do that? Well, no, I mean, they could, so, I mean, they would maybe, um, so you're saying maybe you get violated. Is that what you're saying? You get a yeah, violation. I guess, yeah. I guess like, would they, can they give you a violation for that? Like you're in the plane, something's on the runway. You land on the taxiway. What was the reason? What was the reason for landing on the taxiway specifically, though? Something ran out, but what was the issue that you saw as the pilot that made you say, I'm not going to go around? You had uh, the power failure? Birds. You can't just go. You you need to meet an emergency, though. So if there isn't an a lot emergency. Of, a lot of birds in the air and deer on the runway. Taxiway is looking good, though. So you had to duck under the birds. Why didn't yeah. you just maybe just land long, add some power? Didn't have room. And then kind of go. It was at eight not delta. Enough run, not enough runway. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I that that's really stretching it. I I don't I don't know why you couldn't you duck under. So okay, so you're at a short a lot runway. Of birds. There's a lot of birds. Yeah. The, the, do, then do whatever you need to do. If maybe you maybe it wasn't safe. maybe four maybe four. Hundred birds, five hundred birds on the west if you didn't end. Think it was safe to do a uh-huh. full go around? Totally. Okay, do Lewis to Scott's dog runs out on the runway because he's an idiot. <laughs> he's very, uh, very special. So he just he's running out on the runway, barking at the plane as it's trying to land. So you can't land on Lewis. No. You could. And then you could. Scott, well, yeah, I mean it. Uh-huh. Could hit that dog in the head a couple times. It would, yeah, he'd be fine. I, it wouldn't matter hard. much. Yeah, he'd be and fine. then Scott's dad literally has like four hundred birds converted hangers yeah. at the at the west end of the runway. It's just a bird yeah. sanctuary, and like so, sometimes they get loose. So this is not a, this is not an unrealistic situation. So I land in the field because the runway is full of stuff, but there's somebody in the FAA there that sees me land in the field, and they're like, "What are you doing landing in that field?" I, I think you would I think you would be you'd have to kind of prove your case um beyond a reasonable doubt, but as long as you didn't endanger any other persons or property, I think may you have to go to court over it to stop a violation or something? I mean, maybe, but it's better than the alternative. That is what we're always fighting. That is what we are always fighting when you think of all these hazardous attitudes. You always think about, okay. I may break a rule here, but what, or I may, I may get home later than I wanted. I may upset the company. I may upset the passengers. I may upset my wife. I may whatever, but what is, what is the alternative? Breaking a rule, breaking the airplane or, you know, hurting somebody. So those are what we're weighing against. So I'm not going to worry about what the FAA may say. If me doing a full go around, it's going to take me back up into a flock of birds that may stop the engine and then I'm parking in that field anyways, out of control. 
land under control or land out of control, that seems like an easy equation to make. But you're making a split second, which I understand in the scenario that we've painted. So maybe all that doesn't go through your mind. But yeah, you're going to probably instinctively do what's going to keep you and your airplane as safe as possible. And you may just have to fight that and you may lose. So you get violated, but you have your life and you didn't destroy your airplane. What do you guys Makes think? Sense. Makes Scott sense. Does, Scott does willingly risk his life in order to save money. <laughs> A lot of times, yeah. That's um, worth it, though. There you so, go. So, back to land and hold short clearances. Yeah. You have the option. You always have the option to go around, or if you don't see something that looks good to you, you always can do whatever you need to do. So you've accepted the land and hold short clearance. Yeah, I get that. And we do, we are afraid of air traffic control as pilots. We are afraid they have a great amount of power and a great amount of responsibility and stuff. So we feel responsible and we have to follow whatever they want to do. Well, you're not going to listen to them. They say, Hey, fly this heading. And you know, that points you right at a thunderstorm. Well, you're not going to just do that. You're going to do something else and then file, you know, declare an emergency later or file a report or do whatever you need to do. You can deviate to the, to the extent, you know, required to meet the emergency. So the same thing applies with the land hold short clearance. Ideally, they want you to. But if you have to go around because something doesn't look good, um, maybe, it's a, maybe it's something small. Maybe you weren't on speed. Maybe you forgot to put your full flaps in. Maybe you forgot to put the gear down. You're not going to land belly, you know, on the belly just because you accept the land and hold short clearance. So, um, and that's some of these things are, you know, something we'll get into later. One of the next items uh, and the next few items is aeronautical decision-making over time. You start to develop that and you start to have a really, a much better idea kind of what, what tips the scales in terms of, um, safety versus, you know, rule following or some of these hazardous attitudes, like I just talked about. Um, and that's one of those things. It sometimes takes time to kind of f- figure out that you sometimes need, you you don't have to listen. Yes, we're kind of conditioned to always do what the air traffic control says and always do what the regulations say. But we need to think about, I can have that talk with the FAA inspector later or the, the judge later. But right now, I need to protect the people in my plane and my airplane. So that's... I. But yeah, land hold short clearance, it's it's not that common. I've never been issued a land hold short clearance in my life. Now, um in order to accept a land hold short clearance, you need lasso clearance. You need a um you need to have the length of the runway. Not the total length, but the length before you hit whatever they're asking you not to cross what you have to hold short of yeah the landing distance available yeah how would you find that out the landing distance available and they'll they'll give you that oh okay they'll atc will give you that yeah so i mean so they can they can ask you if you're able to they'll so on the atis automated terminal information service it'll say land hold short operations are in effect is how you'll hear it and so you can kind of expect that and you can decline it they can ask you, hey, can you land and hold short of this other runway or this other taxiway? And you can say, yeah, I can do that. And then they'll issue the land and hold short clearance. You know, So you're clear to land, land and hold short of whatever, the, whatever taxiway or runway. You can say, no, I can't do that. And in a lot of airplanes, think about it. You can't. 
if it's a perfectly intersecting or bisecting uh, runway or taxiway and you're, you have to land in half of the distance, you have to land, not only land the airplane, but you have to get stopped in time to hold short of that other runway or taxiway. That rules out a lot of airplanes from being able to even do it. So, so think about that now in a trainer, a 150, a 172, a Piper warrior, Piper archer, you're a lot more, you have a lot more flexibility. You only need, uh, you know, a thousand, couple thousand feet. So, um, that makes it very doable for, for most airports, but, um, yeah, they'll tell you, um, landing distance available, you know, is this, and that's up to you to know those numbers, you know, for your weight and the conditions, the conditions of the runway and, uh, you know, your, your ground speed and all that stuff that, that dictates the, basically the density altitude and stuff like that. Know your landing distance to know if you have enough. That was my next question. Do you, um, I believe it's two episodes ago, we had Mr. Cochran on. Um, we're talking about the having your numbers. Do you have mm-hmm. to have the numbers and know what your landing distance is um, calculated out to to accept that clearance? Now, yeah, and transport. So, like with Jack, you know, we were talking about um, uh, the transport category stuff, which in that case, we do. We do know those numbers on every landing. We have to have those numbers on every landing. In the, I don't want, I was almost about to say GA, but that's, you know, not really the right terminology, but in light aircraft, let's say, aircraft weighing less than 12,500 pounds, you know, not turboprop, you know, your your quintessential trainers or your light GA airplanes, um, you don't legally, for Part 91, which is just general operations, you don't have to have those numbers. Okay. You don't have to have those fine, like, okay, I need 3,319 feet to, to land and stop. You don't need to, you don't need to know those numbers. Yeah. Cause you're not taking off with those numbers like you are with part 25 operation. Right. Right. Now, part 25 aircraft. Yeah. Now part 135. So a commercial operator, even a small airplane, you have to know those numbers, uh, be able to prove those numbers. This is what I always come back to. And maybe I brought this up with Jack's episode. This is the way I think about things, and it's taken me a long time and maybe a little bit of heartache to get to this point. But, you know, like let's say there's an operation that that is to be conducted and it's close to the limit for the airplane. Like, or let, let's say it's at the limit. Like, I know my skills can handle it. I know the airplane can handle it. Like, let's say I know the airplane good enough and I know that it can do that. Like, let's say, so I go land in this, like, hellacious crosswind. I, I'm confident in the plane. I'm confident in me. I, I've been close. I know it's all good. And I do that successfully. But then I'm taxiing in, and I'm, I'm really stretching the, the concept here. But I'm taxiing in. I've turned off the runway. Everything's good. Safe landing, smooth landing. Everything worked out awesome. I turn off the runway. I'm taxiing into the FBO and to drop off pastures or get gas, whatever. And I clip another airplane with with my wingtip. Now, nothing even related to the landing or the performance of the aircraft. The FAA is going to be like, what the hell are you doing out flying in this anyways? And I again, I know that I'm stretching this. But like, let's make it more realistic. Let's say I do a perfect landing, but somehow a tire blows. There was a spot on the tire that, that had cord showing, and that just happened to be on the bottom when I did the pre-flight, and I didn't notice it. I wasn't the last person to fly it, and when I pre-flighted it in the hangar, that 
spot with the cord showing was on the bottom of the tire. So I go do this landing that's at the limit of the airplane, but I know it can handle it because engineers put all this padding in and I have mad skills, whatever. So I go do this awesome landing. Everything's perfectly safe, but I blow a tire on landing and that causes me to go off the side of the runway or whatever or, or do anything. Yeah. What's the FAA going to say? How do I backtrack and be like, everything was fine up until that tire blew? Who's going to who's gonna believe that? And even if they do, even if that can be proved, it's still going to fall on me from an aeronautical decision-making standpoint. Why were you even out flying when you're beyond the limits of what the manufacturer said for the airplane or you're at the limit? That's what I always default to. When's the FAA going to say, why were you even out here? Nobody else is out flying, but you thought it'd be a good idea to come land today on this runway. Those that's where my mind goes. What's my excuse? Yeah, so that leads well into was it number seven on your list? Uh, the is that aeronautical decision making, or what's what's the next one? Well, aeronautical decision making is two more. That's number nine. Okay. Um, but yeah, the next one's runway incursion avoidance, um, which. I mean, it's all somewhat ties in together. It's all aeronautical decision-making related. That's the general overtone of, of your whole flying career is formulating this aeronautical decision-making. What is enough risk and what is too much? And that's different for everybody. That's different for, you know, you may have the skills, but the airplane doesn't have the performance capabilities or vice versa. And that's more often to get you in more trouble if the airplane has more performance than you do. Uh, but runway incursion avoidance, um, the way I always explained it to students was it's like walking across the street or when you're teaching your kid to walk across the street, look both ways. Make sure you clear both ways before, you know, you're tax taxing onto or across an active runway or a taxiway. Um, and then so so like if you look from an instrument standpoint, if you look at the um uh the taxi diagram or the airport diagram. So it just shows you your runway layout and your taxiway layout and has all the the uh, taxiway lab labeled on there and stuff like that. Um, they'll have like red or magenta circles, which show you what are called hot spots and where there's a lot of runway incursions that happen. So people make the wrong turn or they uh, they think they misinterpret the chart. And so they make a wrong turn onto a taxiway or onto a runway instead of what they thought was a taxiway. Um, it's like turning down the wrong street. It happens all the time, you know, when you're not unfamiliar. So it happens a lot. But at tower controlled fields, when they issue you a taxi clearance, they will tell you, you know, um, they'll want you to read back all your uh, taxiway and hold short instructions. So, you know, like, for example, you'll, um, you know, they'll say, hey, um, Cessna or whatever, so and so. Uh, taxi to runway two four left via Lima Whiskey. Hold hold short or let's say no no how about this taxi to runway two four right via Lima Whiskey. Hold short two four left. So that's what Tower said to you. What you need to say back is exactly what they said. It doesn't necessarily need to be in order. They get it because they do say it in a different order than you would expect to, it to. And that's their own thing. That's their job. We typically say it in the order in which we are going to come across those those roads. Um, so it'd be taxi to runway. Uh, you say you'd say like Lima whiskey hold short two four left to two four right. It's like how I would say it back because that's the order in which I'm going to see all these things. 
I'm going to just like giving directions to somebody when they're going like, Hey, come to my house. You know, you turn left here, turn right here. And then my house, is the fifth house on the left. And then we when they repeat it back or write it down, they're going to write it down exactly in the order in which they're going to come across these things. But ATC says it differently. They'll say taxi to two, four, right, which is the very last thing you're going to do. Taxi two, four, right via Lima whiskey, hold short two, four left. So it's, it's kind of backwards, but it, it all makes sense, but it's just a little bit backwards. Um, so they'll expect you to read it all back, including the whole short instructions. And that's where the runway incursion stuff happens. Make sure you're holding short of runways is kind of the bottom line. Um, so these hot yeah. spots, are, is this new since we were flying? I don't remember this stuff. No, yeah, I don't no, remember anything always, about that. No, they've we all, they've didn't pay attention to that. Maybe. I, I never no. paid attention to it. And, and you know, when some of the controlled fields you've been to might not even have any. I don't have anything in front. I can't pull it. My iPad is in front of me, so I can't oh. pull it up to look to see if, you know, pick an airport. I, I, would. I avoid flying into controlled fields at all costs. But And it's things like that that make people want to. You know, we've brought up ATC several times now. Yeah. You know, they're, they, they know a lot, and they're a great resource if you kind of get yourself into trouble. Um, but they're not all-seeing, all-knowing. You know, they know a lot, and they can help you out a lot. You gotta you you're in control of your airplane, and that takes time to understand where the limitations are, what you can ask of them, what you can do. Then maybe they they don't have the whole picture. Neither do you, but you know what's right in front of you. You know, hey, I'm about to fly into the thunderstorm. This dude gave me a heading to fly that way. I can't go into the thunderstorm. Do what you have to do to stay safe. Bottom line, that that's the bottom line. Period. I mean, there's there's nothing else after that. Yeah. Um, but so, but go ahead. So these hotspots are in the airport diagram yep. on airports that have them? Okay. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, you, class, I'm sure, you know, smaller tower controlled fields uh, like Lantana. I don't know if Lantana has any. Does ta- Lantana have a control tower? No, but they should right. just, the entire airport should be a, a zone of just marking on there. When you look at the diagram. One big hotspot. Yeah. yeah, it's just one big hotspot. Well, and that's so nobody's. There's no uh, hotspots would be at a controlled field, so there, there, there are places where somebody's been issued a taxi clearance or a you know takeoff clearance, and they've gone the wrong way or they've turned off the runway the wrong direction, and they've come nose to nose with another airplane, or they've taxied across a runway that they thought was a taxiway, had to make somebody go around that was on short final. All kinds of stuff. So these are all things that they've learned are hotspots, not something they arbitrarily just came up with. Hey, this looks like this will be a, a bad spot for stuff. No, they, it's happened. That's why they that's why they circled them and they label them hotspot one, hotspot two, hotspot three, so on and so forth. Gotcha. So, so it happens. But I mean, even at the airline level, I mean, you know, you're going to a lot of the same airports a lot, and you have similar taxi instructions all the time. Well, when there's taxiways or runways notumed closed notices to airmen so that's how they kind of tell us ahead of time hey this runway's closed this taxiway is closed it's a it's something that we look at when we flight plan notums notices to airmen and so we know kind of what to expect when we land because think about this if in if a, a certain runway is closed and let's say they have two runways and a certain runway is closed well that make that may make that airport unusable for us so that's something to think about. If it's if like let's say they have a seven thousand foot runway and a four thousand foot runway, well, if they close the seven thousand foot runway, that means I can't use that r- airport anymore. That airport is no longer suitable if the long runway is closed. So 
but that's that's another story, and we'll probably get to notums later on down the list. But um, if they change something up on you, a taxiway is closed, a runway is closed, and you're doing something different than standard, and they give you weird taxi instructions, it's very easy to fall into your old habits. You know, you just did the same flight yesterday, but today that runway is closed. So you landed on a different one. Your taxi instructions are different. It's very easy to be complacent. That's something we always have to fight uh, as pilots is complacency. And it's not easy to do. Um, it's not easy to fight it, I mean. And you're just going to fall into those old habits. You just did it yesterday, right? So you're going to taxi to the terminal or the FBO the same way you did yesterday. Well, that's not necessarily true. So pay attention to your ta- taxi instructions. That's why you read them back. And a lot of times ATC isn't listening for the readback. You know, they're kind of, I don't want to say ATC gets complacent, but everybody is, you know, maybe they just didn't hear. They heard what they wanted to hear. You know, I'm guilty of that a lot. Um, so you have to, if there's any question, always ask, obviously. If you're, if you're a little confused, you got something you didn't expect, double check. And that's a, another reason why I'm a fan of uh, two crew aircraft. But, um, I don't have anything else really on that. Just read it back. Taxi slow. If there's any questions, stop. Hold short of um, hold short lines, even if it isn't specifically stated. And if you're not sure if you're cleared to cross a runway, ask. I got I got nothing else on that. Any, anything to add or any any questions on that that I could clear up or? short. You can't really in a in a check ride situation. Just explain to them the Scott Boris take on it, that you're just never going to go anywhere that has a circle. It's not going to really fly. Yeah. No. Yeah, and, well, well, and that's kind of the point because, you know... You really shouldn't be going in to anywhere that has a controlled field. But that's not valid on a check ride, though. You know, they are... That is your last, like, gate. You know, you need to... You are testing and proving that you can exercise all of the privileges of a private pilot certificate. Yeah. Your certificate allows you to go in the circles. Well, yeah. back back when I was like getting my private license, I would go into a controlled field. It didn't bother me, but now I haven't done it in so long. Yeah, if you and lose my, it, you lose it. Yeah, and my instructor, you know, he's kind of flaky. You know, I've been saying for years I need to do some controlled tower work with him, and he just never gets around to it. So, well, he's, he's prepping you for a... The check ride you've already taken right now, so yeah, um, that's true. What's the that's next? Uh, what's the next one on your uh, everlasting gobstopper list, Lee? Yeah, it will be by the looks of things. Um, controlled flight and terrain. So again, these are so these first. Um, I think it's up to thirteen. I'll maybe double check that here. But these are just in case anybody didn't listen to or they're just checking in now. Whatever. These are what used to be the special emphasis areas on the practical test standards. We've moved away from that. This was announced the ACS, Airman Certification Standards. This used to be a page early on in the book, one of the first few pages, if I remember. And these were areas that needed to almost be singular. They could be singularly, almost the way we're covering them. This could be just boom, boom, boom. What's this? What's this? What's this? What would you do here? And that would be their way of, you know, checking the boxes for lack of a better term. And they could cover the material that were special emphasis areas that had to be covered. Now in the ACS, they are parts of, of, of other areas of operation. So they would be kind of buried in another, um, maneuver or another, um, element that you, that, that you would be conducting 
on the actual check ride so that it's part of the scenario based concept. Uh, the FAA is big on that and it is good for our memory to practically apply um, these special emphasis, some of these special emphasis area concepts. So it's all still there. All of these items are there. They're just not presented in the same way that we're covering them here. This is obviously great refresher. And that's what I use it as. So this would still be a pertinent document for me to cover just to make sure, you know, that, that I have all my bases covered. And I said this on the last episode, I would always tell my students that, that they would, um, or not the last episode, but the last time we covered this, this document, um, I would always tell them there's going to be one, there's going to be a time where I'm going to let you down, meaning that I didn't cover something in sufficient detail or I omitted it or didn't catch it. And there's going to be a time that you're going to let me down something that I know that we covered and you're just going to blank on it or the way the question is presented is not the way I asked it or the way I covered it. So it could throw you for a loop and you come up kind of empty. So that that's, that's kind of an agreement and, um, that's just the way it is, I think. Um, so, uh, that, that's why I made this document. And these first, I think, 13 items, I guess, are right from that special emphasis area section. Um, so we're actually, we're almost all the way through now. So with, with number eight here, um, controlled flight and terrain. So some of the elements here. So controlled flight and terrain is really when you actively, you didn't lose control of the airplane. You just impacted the ground while flying the airplane in what you thought was a safe manner. And this happens when, like, let's say on an instrument uh, instrument approach, you have, uh, you're coming down and the, the weather's not too bad, but you've come down and you bust out of the clouds. You got the airport in sight, and, but you're, the instrument approach you're doing is not lined up with the runway you want to land. So like, let's say you did the instrument approach the whole time with a tailwind. Well, you don't want to land with a tailwind. So you could do the instrument approach with a tailwind, but at some point you need to break off and then come around to the 180 degree, you know, runway and land into the wind. That makes sense. Um, within with certain, you know, limitations, you know, you can land with a little bit of tailwind, and every airplane is a little bit different. Why, like, why would you do? Why would you do the approach into the wrong run, runway? Some air, Run? some airports have terrain in such a way that they only have an air, or one approach into one okay. direction. Yeah, no, that's a gr- that's a great question. That's so once you question. once you able to fly visually then you can yep okay yep that's so that's a circle to land you know some uh, it can be you know there may not be um so think back in the day you know now everything's so gps so you know guys with instrument ratings that are learning now are like oh they just have a gps approach what's this guy talking about well back in the day when everything was more surface based you know, the localizer or a VOR, a VOR is a bad example because it can go multiple directions, but a localizer, if you wanted a good approach uh, to an airport, that costed money. You probably wouldn't have multiples. You'd have an ILS or a localizer DME to one runway and that's it. You know, they don't want the, 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 the prevailing winds runway, you know. So uh, it costs a lot of money. Now you can just go build a GPS approach. It doesn't cost you anything to run it. Um, so, but maybe terrain is still a factor in, in that case, you know, like I said, Scott, that would be, that would be the case. You'd have one runway, uh, served by an instrument approach. So you're doing that with the wind, with a tailwind, you break out of the clouds, you have the airport in sight, you break off left or right, and then circle to land the opposite direction where that can be a problem is if you maybe don't have the correct altimeter setting, um, you don't. You're not 100% sure your position. 
like let's say you're still in the clouds and you're not 100% sure of your position so you don't know you know necessarily what the terrain is right below you or right in front of you so those obviously can be considerations um and then know your maximum elevation figure if you're um looking at um what do I want to say if you're looking at a sectional chart so in each quadrant uh, of your latitude longitude lines those are called quadrangles quadrangles and each one of those has what's called a maximum elevation figure um so like let's say let's say you have one you, you know you're flying around you know denver or something you have one and a maximum elevation figure that's 11 so it'd be like a capital 11 and then like a lowercase 7 so 11,700 feet what that represents is you have a maximum elevation uh, of the terrain of what is probably 11.5 and change. So like, let's say it's 11,520 feet, for example. So how they come up with 11.7 is they round up to the next nearest 100. So it's always up. They always round up. So let's say it's 11,501 feet to, to really stress the, the principle or the concept. 11,501. They'll round that up to 11.6 and then they add 100. So that would be your 11.7 for an example, which I'm totally making up. So you need to know that figure if you're VFR flying. So the, the, um, you know, you do that and then you do your, um, um, altimeter setting within 100 nautical miles. That's the reg. You need to be set to an altimeter setting, a station, uh, within 100 nautical miles of your, of your flight path, basically. So you do those two things. Um, you're good. You know, you, obviously you're not going to hit anything as long as you maintain adequate, you know, clearance above that maximum elevation figure and you have the appropriate altimeter setting from a VFR standpoint. It's a whole nother can of worms when you talk IFR, of course, because you're in the clouds, you might not see anything. But uh, I know I rambled there. Uh, yeah, is, you guys is there ahead. a scenario like I'm sitting here trying to think of and I can't think of one, but I know they do exist like see fit uh, in the VFR, like for a private pilot. That like scenario that be an uh, examiner could bring up that it might be in. Obviously, the I, I know why you went there because the instrument approach ones, the ones we we think of first, uh, that kind of stuff for for CFIT control flight into, into terrain. But you're not shooting approaches for the private. But this is still some old holdouts who are still, even though they're using the ACS now, they've done the pts for decades before that so this is still on the back of a lot of those examiners minds well it still needs to be covered even under the acs it's not it's not so much a you know it's it's just not labeled like it's not bullet points like it is in the pts it's the inform you you still have to make sure that the student is they understand control flight and terrain you know they haven't they haven't really had to change anything. They're just not going to bring it up, and maybe they still bring it up in an oral. That point, that point you're making is is valid, but they're going to have to incorporate something in the way they're conducting, um, maybe an instrument approach brief or some. The I, I I don't know what the example would be how they would cover it or bury it into you know kind of sifting through the elements of a particular area of operation. Um, but they definitely still have to cover it. It's not not so much that it's all uh, a holdover. They're holding on to old habits, die hard from the PTS. Um, it still needs to be covered. It's just not like upfront. Let's get this out of the way because we're not going to cover this later. 
type thing. That's how the PTS was geared. Gotcha. Now you still have to cover it. You just have to include it. So it's scenario based, not like a rote memory regurgitate this. Cause your instructor just went over this with you. You know, we're presenting this information maybe in a little bit of a misleading way. Cause like I said, you know, this is, I made this back when it was PTS. Um, it, it still needs to be covered and it won't be presented this way, but there's just maybe some background information. I would still say this is very worthwhile because we're covering some regs on the way. Um, yeah. I can't cite the specific ones, but you know, setting your, your altimeter within hundred nautical miles, that's a regulation. I don't know what it is off the top of my head. It's somewhere 91. I don't know what that is, but um, it's there. That's a regulation for sure. Um, so, you know, we're covering some of those along the way and some exposure, but um, to, to your point about, how would a private pilot VF or private pilot encounter this? One thing that comes to my mind immediately, and I, I may be a little bit off here. Let me know what you think is. You, I think about a private a VFR private pilot may be getting disoriented, spatially disoriented, like JFK, you know, not knowing which way is up. He thought he was completely in control of the plane. Probably, I, yeah. I thought he got. I thought he got shot. JFK Jr. I'm sorry. Okay. Okay. Now that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. God. You had me. Uh, yeah. You had me really confused there for a minute. Oh, sorry. Um. Yeah. JFK was flying a Saratoga. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't even think they had. Uh, he was flying a, a limousine. Yeah. 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 Um. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things, and that may be a gray area that it's just barely not control flight. And I don't know exactly, was were they screaming before they hit the water, or did they just hit the water and he thought he was completely in control? That's uh, that's probably a gray area because he got disoriented. He didn't know which way was up anymore. But did he know he was out of control when they impacted the water? I don't know. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know that answer. I mean, but, but don't you look at don't you look at your instruments? Or you he just... wasn't instrument rated. Oh. But even, so, I mean, even as a private pilot, you would know it at night. It was at night, wasn't it? I believe so. I mean, you kind of know. Was that prior to the th- required three hours of instrument training I, for the private? I doubt it. I don't know when that happened, but they've had that three hours of instrument training in there for a long time. Yeah. I and that, so this is this is another example like I brought up, and I and I do want to kind of come back to this, but this is another example of what I brought up. You know, people have they can buy an aircraft that is much higher performance than they are. And I'm not saying that you can't grow into it and get there, but it's easy to fall into that trap of, you know, I want to go fast, I want to go high, I want to do all these things. Well, you have to have, you know, kind of the requisite training to keep up with the airplane as well. Now, he didn't have something especially high-performing. Yeah, by the final letter of the law, it was high-performance. It was more than 200 horsepower. But I mean, that's not a specially... It's not a high-performance characteristic aircraft. Probably Castro probably had something to do with it. Yeah, I think he was up near Martha's Vineyard. Yeah, but still, I mean... Well, Castro, okay, maybe. Castro killed his dad. He's off to, out to finish the job, you know? Kill his maybe. Son too. Maybe. Yeah, they've Makes had sense. a they've had a lot of bad luck in that family. So this is yeah. this is getting off the rails really fast. Um that's my job. So yeah. <laughs> I 
I don't know of spatial disorientation that is played in there. I don't know if that falls under kind of its own subset of this thing, but you know, if it's got, you know, your question is valid, you know, trust your instruments, right? That's what we're supposed to do. They say the average um, time frame from a time, a VFR only pilot, like let's say, let's say you don't even have the instruments. Like let's say you just have the bare minimum. You have a compass an altimeter and airspeed indicator, kind of your, your three um, aircraft control instruments. So you can know how high you are, how fast you're going, and what direction you're headed. Those three things kind of make up your aircraft control group from a basic VFR standpoint. Let's say a VFR-only pilot, or even me, uh, as an instrument-rated pilot, I'm instrument-proficient, um, and let's say you slap me in an airplane, a J3 Cub, for example, where I don't have anything else that tells me any other information other than how high I am, how fast I'm going, and what direction I'm headed. And you let me go fly into IMC or instrument meteorological conditions, like into a big, big, big puffy cloud. I'm going to be in it for minutes, let's say. If you send me into that cloud or if I go fly into that cloud, and we're just testing, let's say it's a perfectly legal test we're doing. The FAA is on board. It's what they want to do. It's a sanctioned event, let's say. They say that the average time it takes for a VFR pilot, so I'm kind of removing that concept on it. I'm making it a VFR-only airplane, like extremely limited VFR airplane. It takes six seconds for you to start becoming spatially disoriented. So you're you're flying into a cloud, let's say, a big cloud, and you are, or in the simulator, whatever, so it's legal, whatever you need to do. I'm just making up a scenario. You fly, you, you do this, you fly into instrument conditions and you're trusting nothing but your own body's, your body's sensations of which way is up and down. It takes about six seconds before you are spatially disoriented, meaning you can no longer accurately tell which way is up. Six yeah. seconds. That's not but much. Don't you, what instruments do you have in this hypothetical situation? Well, this is basically nothing. Airspeed, altitude, and magnetic compass. Yeah. I suppose. So yeah. the, the 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 what I'm trying to get at is you're mainly it's an airplane you would mainly look outside for all of your yeah. reference to attitude and stuff like that. That's what I'm trying to get at, which I think is what they're painting. Because I mean, he, I mean, I probably couldn't do very good with a magnetic compass or altimeter, but I probably would not die if I was in a cloud for a minute. Yeah, yeah I mean, as long as you're you maintaining. As long as you're maintaining your altitude and your heading, you're probably going to be all right. Yeah, but a compass isn't very good for maintaining heading. I mean, they just well, bounce no. around and wobble around. Well, true, no, but and they've come a long way. Is gonna, I mean, if you're not losing altitude and you're in your basically the same heading, you're probably not going to get in too much trouble. Yes, hundred percent. Uh, yeah, a hundred percent. And and I guess maybe I went the wrong way. I didn't expect it. I thought we'd just yeah. move on. I mean, but. Unless you just you look out the window, let's say you tape up all those gauges and you just go by the sensations in your body. Oh yeah, I can I see that. Yeah, I was trying to remove any. Yeah, if you remove stuff, remove all it. instruments. Yeah, I could easily see getting almost immediately disoriented. I guess that's what I'm getting at. I guess yeah. I built a scenario for no reason, but yeah, yeah. That, that's it. So. If you are like, why you would do that in a Piper Saratoga or whatever he was? Well, in, yeah. I mean, first of all, first. Don't fly into clouds ever. Well, no, I think his thing was, I think it was scud running a little bit, but he was out over the ocean. 
if I remember correctly, and maybe let's not even say it's JFK Jr. This happens all the time. You lose what? Which? What's the horizon? Like, oh yeah, the and if you fl- even if you the sky, if you fly over the lake at night here, it's like complete black. You can't tell the difference between the the lake and the sky. There's just it's just a black screen. Right. Right. There's been accidents coming off of Kelly's yeah. towards the, yep. towards the east. Yeah, there have been oh, yeah. people that taken off of Kelly's and just flown right into the water. Yep, Kelly's Island. It's easy to do if you're trying to follow, you know, kind of, you know, what your eyes are telling you, what your ears, you know, your your um equilibrium and your inner ear, what they're telling you. You follow those, it can get you into trouble. That's why the three hours of instrument training is supposed yeah. to be there. But if you took your instrument or if you took your private pilot check ride or training 20 years 10 years ago five years ago you've lost all that yeah you know so it can be very easy for you to be conducting a what is a truly vfr operation but still get disoriented and end up hitting the ground thinking you were perfectly or the water and be think you're perfectly in control you guided the airplane (laughs) to impact and you thought nothing was wrong until you were dead it's, I've flown off of the Kelly's Island. I bring that up because I've flown. I know people have died doing that, and I, I've done that a bunch of times because I used to work out there. I'd take off at night, fly back to Scott's place at the mainland, and there's been times where I take off and it's just so dark. Yeah, you like, just I was in, I was instrument rated at, at I was instrument rated, but I wasn't current at the time. The aircraft, the 150 I had, um, wasn't instrument certified, but it's still I'm going on instruments. Yeah. Even though I'm, you know, legally VFR, yeah. I'm still going on instruments. Just, yeah. it's just pitch black. I remember taking off out of there at night and just not looking out the window at all, just looking at the instruments. Yeah, it's it's the window. As soon as the plane, yeah, as soon as the plane left the ground, I stopped looking out the window. As soon as we were past pitch yeah. black, as soon as we were past the black. runway lights, you know, as soon as I couldn't see the runway lights anymore, I just stopped looking out the window until. Yep. I could see the lights of the mainland and then it's like, okay, you know, I know what's going on now, but. And, and, but that's, you guys are, you know, <laughs> experienced good pilots. It's so uh, easy when you conduct. Don't, don't throw operation. me in that group. I well, mean, you are, you are so, Scott. Jesus. Okay. So that could be a sea fit situation, like flying the Lake Erie Islands at night. Is you just. If it's all black, the lake's black and the sky's black, and you're not on, you, you know, you're not paying really close attention to what's going on and understand that this is a phenomenon, you could basically just fly straight into the lake. Yeah, you think you're you think you're climbing on out, gaining altitude, and you've put it into a bank, and before you know it, you're inverted, and it's amazing how quickly this this your senses but really you know, kind of you, you really have to not be paying attention a lot because. Obviously, on takeoff and climb out, you're full power. So uh-huh. how often, even on a, a clean, clear day, completely VFR, I'm quite frequently glancing at my airspeed. And that alone would tell me that I'm climbing. So unless there's something if you're wrong, in a turn. Well, unless, I guess. But you should also be looking at you know, your when you glance down to look at your your airspeed, you probably look at your your turning bank or your artificial horizon or 
I agree, and that's on you know that's being on Instagram. Well, I'm just saying, even should... even on a clean, clear day, I don't know. I I could see how it could happen, but I just I feel like if you're paying attention it, it, at all, it it really shouldn't happen. You know, and a lot of people, you're the sensations you're feeling in your body. If you don't have the some training for it. And I, yeah, and you'll let you. I guess I could see you'll let your sensations override what your your eyes are we telling can, you. We can debate whether the three hours in the private, the minimum for the private, is enough. But if you don't have the enough training, your body's telling you one thing is like this feels like straight, you know, straight climb, and you know there must be something wrong with my instruments. Yeah, you know, and then you're basically. It's those gauges versus what your body sensations are telling you. And if you don't have the if you don't have enough training on instruments, a lot of people's instinct is to go with their body, what That's they're telling true. them, and I your body's going to de- deceive you. Yep. You just have to 100%. trust those instruments over everything else. Just assume the instruments are right because your body's probably wrong. <laughs> and be able to identify by cross-referencing when one instrument's going bad which is obviously yeah. instrument training. That I mean, all that plays into why, you know, you shouldn't have, I mean, how many times I've flown, well, too many times have I gotten like a customer, like a, a student's airplane they bought or whatever. Then their attitude indicator didn't work. Ah, it's a $3,000. Um, well, in it, like what we're talking about, it'd be really nice to just have the attitude indicator. Yeah, that's, that's an expensive instrument and maybe that's overkill for just making sure your wing's level. Like Scott said, a, a turn and bank or a turn coordinator would do the job just fine for a lot of people. But an attitude indicator obviously would, would tell you your pitch for climb and your bank for turning. You know, th- that would tell you your whole story and you just check your airspeed indicator as a quick glance. Uh, and you'd be covered, right? And I get all that. But, you know, a lot of people have gyro instruments that don't work or they haven't gotten their pedostatic. And, and there's just a bunch of a bunch of reasons people just don't maintain stuff. And that's a great example there. That's a great example of why you want to have full trust. Not like, ah, sometimes that gyro falls over. Or, you know, sometimes I'm having trouble with my vacuum system or whatever. This is not a time where you want to second guess, like you said, Rob, second guess your instruments. Your default, even for an instrument pilot, even a proficient instrument pilot, you want to trust your body, you know, but it, it's it's not, it's very easily deceived. And that's kind of the study the FAA has come up with is it only takes a few seconds before you are deceived by your senses. So uh, trust your instruments, like you said, 100% agree. And and Scott, yeah, you're you're talking about glancing in and looking at the referencing. That's instrument flying. And that's what that is. And yeah. for you, you're you're talking from your perspective. A lot of people don't have, they don't do that. They don't they don't fly like that. They fly in a semi controlled environment on nice weather days. They happen to just stay a little too later. The weather was bad. Let's say at Kelly's Island, the weather's bad all day. They couldn't take off. Finally, it clears up. It happens to be nighttime. They haven't flown at night in years, and it's a rental airplane and all these things. I mean, you can just build this whole scenario it's a perfect pick it's a perfect storm for them to you know and most people who fly out an airport they don't they don't think that oh the moment you leave that island you're out over open water of lake erie and it's gonna be pitch black they never experienced something like that in their life that's true too that's true too 
It's amazing how just going to a different airport, you know, not not the not just doing the laps and the pattern during the day on a nice day. Uh, it's amazing how many things we take for granted. You just go to a new airport that's got all new like visual cues and stuff. You know, you're coming out of a cruise altitude and you're descending on in. You're landing in a different, you know, the the runway layout is different. The runway's longer. The runway's wider. Whatever, and the lighting is different, and all these things. It's amazing how much we take these things for granted. How much we need these visual cues to form, you know, our 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 whole, you know, a precise approach path to do that good landing. Uh, it's it's crazy. It always amazes me when I go fly with students, and I purposefully let's go somewhere they haven't gone before. Let's go somewhere they have gone before a lot at night and see how kind of how bad a job they do. It's somewhere they should be perfectly familiar with, but just because it's nighttime and their visual cues are gone, how ba- how poorly they do. Um, like you leave your home airport during the day, you go do some takeoffs and landings at a different airport, but then they come back to your home airport, but now the sun's down, and just kind of leave them their own devices and see how poorly they do. And it should be eye-opening for most people how much they rely on those visual cues. Makes sense. Yeah, so it's 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 something that I, I don't I think we take for granted how much we ta- use the visual cues, um, and then like at Kelly's, even on takeoff, you've lost all of them. You have limited to begin with because you're taking off uh, over water. Now it's nighttime, so you have zero. I mean, it's might as well be t- flying in a cloud like you guys are talking about. There's no visual cues, so um, you can do nothing but rely on the instruments, and if that is not your if that's not what you do, it's just not a safe operation. Yeah. You know, that's, that's just the way it is. I'm rolling on to the next one. If you guys are ready. Yeah. Um, this is finally aeronautical decision-making. Um, so simply put, um, it's making good decisions based on all the pertinent and available information to you identifying, you know, hazardous attitudes, like I've talked about and, uh, you know, or, or situations, hazardous situations and kind of modifying, um, your approach to any of the, these attitudes or these situations um, so that you're limiting the, the, the risk associated with them. Um, so be conservative. You know, I talk about that a lot. That's kind of my, my shtick and you know, I need to practice what I preach maybe a little bit more. I try to, but sometimes some of these hazardous attitudes are, are there, they're always there, but it's how good are you at kind of tempering them a little bit? Um, so be conservative. You know, if you're unsure of the safety um, of a particular operation, don't do it. You know, wait till you can be, so the, the safety margin is black and white. Don't be in a gray area on the safety margin. That just doesn't make sense. Um, you want to take the conservative route. I, I mean, I'm a firm believer in that. And that, that could be, that could be canceling the flight. Um, and that might be really, really hard. Those are the attitudes we always have to fight. You, somebody always has to be somewhere. Have to be there at a certain time. Um, you're letting people down. You're missing something, whatever. But showing up late is better than not showing up at all. Um, there's a lot to that. There's a lot to unpack in aeronautical decision making. But that's oh yeah, that's the short and sweet that I mean that I have. Um, you've sat in on some oral exams w- with students. Can you, do you remember any examples that were? brought up to drive this point home or if not don't worry about it no i mean i have countless um my of my own um but as far as how it was presented 
on a check ride. Um, a, perf- a perfect example that would always come up is, and this this might be hard for some people to relate. Um, let's say you're taxing around on an unfamiliar airport, or no, maybe let's call it a familiar airport or an unfamiliar. I guess it doesn't matter, but you see an airport sign that you've never seen before. And you don't normally go in this area, but you're seeing an airport sign that you've never seen before. Would you choose to just go in there or not? And so I would say no. If you don't know what that sign says or what it means, because it's just symbology. You've never seen the sign before. Give an example. Oh, would you want me to describe to you a sign? Yeah. So it's uh it's a like for example a no entry sign would be like a red well you tell me what a no entry sign looks like Scott you describe me? To me what a no entry sign yeah for an airport yeah uh big white X on the runway no the so runway we're taxing closed. around we're taxing around on the runway oh you're on the ground mm-hmm. okay yeah yeah I don't know at a familiar unfamiliar field whatever um. And there's there's a there's a ramp you see, and there's other airplanes tied down there. And there's a sign, and you don't know what the sign means. Would you just keep going onto that ramp, or would you be like, eh, maybe I'll just do what I normally do and not go in there, even though that was way more convenient or something? I got to build a scenario to kind of prove a point. But a no entry sign looks like a red, so it's a red bordered. I'm th- I'm going off the top of my head here. It should be a red bordered white background circle with a red um uh like half like a dash in the middle of it that's a no entry sign maybe my colors are inverted but pretty sure it's red bordered white sign with a red dash in the middle that's a no entry sign so the way it has been presented is when you go over airport signage the examiner that I, that I use all the time for all my check rides um, he would come up with his airport flashcards and he'd go up th- and, and of course I'd go over these with, with the student and maybe I missed this one. I'd go over airport signage, of course, cause we had to do controlled field operations and you just need to do it anyways. And he'd come to this and a lot of times they would space like, or not know what it was. And he goes, what's this sign? And maybe if they blanked and he'd immediately be like, okay, I don't expect you to know this, but I'm going to be fair. Would you go there? And what's the answer need to be? No. That's being conservative. You don't know what a sign means. Don't just go blaze on through and hope that it wasn't detrimental. What if there was wet concrete right on the other side of that sign? So that that's I'm painting a huge scenario, and this is just coming from the top of my head from a check ride, but numerous examples. There's thunderstorms in the area. Well, you shouldn't have even been there for the check ride. But are you gonna risk it? Yeah, it's probably fine. But should you risk it? No, that's poor aeronautical decision making. Um, oh, that big, tall, puffy cloud. That doesn't look too bad. I'll just, I, I want to keep going straight. I've already, I already took off a half hour late. I don't want to add another half hour to the flight. Do I go through it? No, go around. You know, it's things like that. That's aeronautical decision-making. I mean, there's countless examples on every single flight, probably. Yes. I think, I mean, I, I'm just, a, I'm cons- conservative standpoint. Do I kind of, fall short of of my goal all the time. Absolutely. Um, I would just say, just be conservative. You know, if, if, if the one thing about risk 
is the problem it is for us as human beings we can we can always weigh the benefits of taking the risk we can never accurately assess the the negatives the detriments how dangerous the risk is we can always like we can really clearly see oh you know if i take off into this you know there's a thunderstorm right over top of the airport if i take off i'll get to the destination on time but we cannot accurately assess how much it's going to suck when we crash the airplane even if it's only minor we're always going to say god i should have waited 10 more minutes 50 more minutes 30 more minutes whatever we can we always say those things after the fact we can't assess risks the negative outcomes of risks appropriately so be conservative keep if not almost if nothing else that i ever say uh, lands take that to heart i'm not saying just be a complete wuss about stuff there's always some risk or you know airplanes the engine could take off fail on takeoff well <laughs> that the, 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 the screwed possibilities yeah but the possibilities of that are much more remote than getting you know something bad happening taking off into a thunderstorm yeah, I so you yeah you need to think about the probability of the 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 risk exposing element happening, and what the ne- the reward the risk versus reward is, or whatever you know what I'm saying. I think you all know what I'm saying. Be conservative, and it is going to take you the rest of your aviation career to master it. And that's that's for all of us. I mean, literally, you never you. What I'm saying is, you never learn it fully. I will I will be learning aeronautical decision making for the rest of my aviation career. We all will because it is an ever changing thing. Every flight you do has certain risks, certain rewards. It's easy for us to see the rewards and not the risks, and that's why we take risks as human beings. Um, and we always end up, you know, if the bad thing happens, that unfortunate event happens, we always say, God, I wish I would have just waited or I wish I would have done this or whatever. Why did I do that? That was so stupid because we just, as human beings, we just can't, we just can't do it. So, um, be conservative. And as you all know me and will hear me in the future, everything I do is pretty much all geared towards, um, being conservative on the aeronautical decision-making. Um, um, the next one, number 10, checklist usage. Um, this is a big one. And, you know, there's some guidance in the FARs on this, um, especially for um, commercial operators. Um, simply here, just, you know, for your private pilot check ride, starting taxi takeoff landing checklist. Those are pretty much required. Um, there are always other ones, typically always other ones, you know, for climb, cruise, descent uh, checklists. And, you know, it depends on how it depends on how your flight school is geared or how your airplane is geared, what the manufacturer says, depends on how complex they are, um, what the FAA guidance is. You know, you can conduct your own studies if you're a part a commercial operator and, you know, submit data to to the FAA and get provisions for doing different things. But normally the manufacturer's checklists uh, are what you're going to follow. Um and if you're doing a specific operation with a specific airplane, you know, you could probably water it down a little bit and and pare it down to something that is more manageable. You know, if like let's say, for example, you know, you're flying you're doing a skydiving operation of VFR conditions in a twin otter. Well, I'm sure that airplane has a lot of checklists and long checklists, longer checklists, be going to f- flying, you know, up in Alaska 
doing ILSs, instrument approaches, you know, down to minimums than you are on a VFR day. So you're not, you don't need all those checklists per se. Will the FA let you get away from them? I don't know. That's up to them and up to you as the operator or whatever. But that's just, that's the first thing that came to my mind. Twin Otters is one of my favorite airplanes and I, it has a very wide range of uses. Um, you don't need to be doing instrument stuff on a checklist when you never don't need to use that equipment or you're not conducting that type of operation. So it's going to be tailored fit. See what you can do if, if you have anything like that going on. Before um, a, um, mm-hmm. For the private pilot check ride, though, yeah. what, is, what are they getting at? So yeah, you want to know. So you want to use. The, you want to use the checklist, and at a minimum, these should be your. These should be your your checklist. I mean, you know, there's there's a before. There's a walk around checklist. You know, you can follow along. You can go through all the minutia step by step. You know, the pre flight, the walk around, the before starting engines, the starting engines, the before taxi, the taxi, um, before takeoff. I, I'm sure at some point there's probably a takeoff, which is obviously you just doing the takeoff. It's kind of you read it before you go do it, and you just rem- it's not like you're following along through the takeoff. Um, then a uh, after takeoff, then a climb, then a cruise, then a descent, then a before landing, an after landing, and a shutdown. I mean, all secure. Then they're securing. I mean, there. So I mean, there's so many checklists you could have. Um, but here, mainly what you're looking for is a starting, a taxi, a takeoff, and a landing. Those are the main ones they're going to want to see you use the checklist for. I would never, on a check ride, I call it check ride mode. I would never say, just again, go back, be conservative. If you're If you're questioning whether you should run a checklist, just run it. It takes a couple extra seconds. Yeah, it may not be convenient. But you don't want to do everything else perfect and then land them and be like, why didn't you do that shutdown checklist or whatever? Just do go to the extent necessary, you know, to to be as conservative as you can, especially on a check ride. Um that's that that's kind of the thing there. Um, one thing I would say is emergency checklists, you can kind of there's a lot to that. I would say you, there's probably in a light GA trainer, there's probably a flow that you could probably be taught or learn or make up or whatever that would address a lot of the concerns you may have. And some of the biggest concerns we always have is like fuel starvation or, you know, an engine, you know, a failure. And there are, or loss of power. I should say loss of power. Because an engine failure, you know, people kind of have like this uh, this connotation where, oh, the, the prop stopped or the engine just failed and it's not producing any power. I want to say power loss because like with really bad carburetor ice or, you know, whatever, you could just have a loss of power. You're pr- still producing power, but it's much less than, than you need or would like to have at that point in time. So I should say a power loss. You can have a flow um, that, that would cover a lot of the items in a minimal amount of time. You can run through those very quickly. And I think I had students getting down to like six or seven seconds. They could run through a really quick flow and it would address all of your fuel flow considerations, um, carb ice. And I mean, it's kind of, that's really about it. If you're talking about power loss, which obviously in a small airplane, I think is probably one of the, the most, that, that's what I'd be worried about the most. Um, so, 
Um, have, you can have a flow, at least know the first few items, the first few big ticket items to, to, to get the, the power going again um, as much as you can. And then kind of move on to the, the manufacturer's checklist or, you know, whatever that flight school's checklist, whatever that operator has developed um, and whittle through, you know, kind of process of elimination uh, to, to get it back going again or whatever the next steps are. Maybe you don't get it going again. And then you, that- uh, you're doing best glide and all that jazz mm-hmm. and picking suitable landing site and lining up towards all that stuff. Well, I mean, well, so here's another one that a lot of people don't think about. What do you guys, what if you got smoke in the, in the cabin? That's something people don't like, what do you do then? You field. don't think about land, land in the field. Yeah. But you're at 8,000 feet. It's going to take you minutes. It's going to take you minutes and you got to deal with that smoke. Dive, dive quickly. Well, yeah, I know. But how fast can you dive without overspeeding the airplane? You know, rip mm. the wings off so you can get to the safe field. <laughs> That's not going to work. I don't, do I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if landing in a field is the best idea anyway. But well, I'm just saying. So I'm just saying, raising a point that what yeah. do you do? So I mean, we tend to think of oh, the only thing that's really going to happen is that engine's going to fail. Well, yeah. What if the engine's on fire and it's producing a lot of smoke? How do you get the smoke out of the cabin so you can Open at least window. breathe and pilot it? There's more, there's always more to it than that. And, and, and the bottom line is the manufacturer has a checklist for that. On so, modern aircraft, you go on older aircraft, air, on older aircraft. It's just like, well, and we didn't think of that back then. You're, like, you're on no. your own. No. Um, well, I, yeah, I know even, you know, a seventies airplane has it. Maybe your one fifty didn't, you know, but yeah, I mean, I know a seventy. Six seventy-seven Archer on up has that checklist in the okay. AFM. So it's—I mean—it's pretty common sense. But follow the manufacturer. There may be some things that you could be wrong. In so if you just came up with the checklist on your own and like you were just thrown into the situation, you're out flying around and you didn't know there was a checklist or there isn't one, and you're just figuring that out now, you could do the wrong thing for all the right reasons. I'm, yeah. I'm just—I'm just saying you could exacerbate the issue instead of. Uh, alleviating the issue. Um, so know that no one. Oh, perfect point. Know what emergency checklists there are. If nothing else, again, have your coverall. Hopefully, you know your instructor can help you with that. If they don't have one, I would say bring it up to them. And I bet between the two of you working on it, or they'll be like, "Wow," or maybe they'll say this. I never thought about that before. We should kind of have a master quick you know, um, procedure flow for emergencies and maybe that maybe everybody has this maybe i'm not that smart maybe every single flight school every single instructor has this concept um but if they don't bring it up to them and uh they'll maybe they'll get with other instructors and they'll develop something and i would push them to do that because you want to cover your bases as quickly as possible to give you time because like rob said you're going for best glide run through this um this quick flow and then um, get onto a checklist. Like, okay, that did not solve my problem. Let's get into the approved flight manual or the POH for this airplane. And like I just said, know what emergency checklist you have. So you know, okay, it's doing this. Man, yeah, I don't think we have that checklist. I'll double check maybe, but I'm pretty sure we don't. Um, have some memory. Have some understanding of your airplane in your approved flight manual or your POH so that you know what you have, what resources you have available to you. 
and let's say you have the checklist, get to that checklist and start working through the manufacturer's steps uh, to get you get you back where you're going. And maybe 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 it never solves the problem. I, I don't know, but um, do the, run these checklists. Um, you know the ta- starting taxi takeoff and landing checklist before landing checklist. Um, they're all all the manufacturers label them different. And then have some kind of flow idea for the the big ticket items on an, on an engine failure or a general emergency, and then uh, work through your proof flight your proof flight manual. That would be that that I would say that would sum up um, the checklist usage on a check ride. And if you are a CFI that is begrudgingly listening to this episode because your students demanded some crazy thing they heard on a podcast from you. The official uh, complaint email of the podcast is F-A-R-A-M at scottboris.com. I just wanted to get that out there just to cover our bases. Yep. <laughs> I probably um, won't even respond to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's why That's why they go to you. That's why they go to you. Right to the recycle bin. Um, next one, mm-hmm. if you guys are good, moving on to the next one. Yeah, we'll do one or two more. I think we got... All right. Yeah, cool. Uh, wind shear. Um, so wind shear is, and uh, we hear a lot about it, why it's dangerous, whatever. What it is, it's an abrupt change in wind direction and or velocity. Um, and that's a lot of times, like if you're in an airliner and you're way up high, you don't tend to think of wind shear up high. You tend to think of it down low. Uh, and we even have the low level wind shear is kind of a lot like buzzwordy, and that's you know there's a low level wind shear alert service or um, system I guess around airports where they have sensors detecting wind shear, um, but we get it up at, at altitude. So one thing like when I see when we start getting bumps like way up high, so like the Lear we can go up to forty five, forty seven thousand feet, and when we start getting bumps, first thing I look at is what's the wind doing, and Almost always, you'll see a wind direction change or wind velocity change. So that is, turbulence is almost always some form of wind shear. And shear meaning a change in direction uh, or, or velocity. But it's most dangerous, and why we talk about it so much, is because at low altitude, it is dangerous. Let's say you have the headwind. You're taking off on a runway, and of course, you should be taking off with a headwind if it's if it's possible. And uh, you take off with this headwind, and let's say that wind, it's a 20-knot headwind. So that's a big component of your airspeed. Um, you know, your forward velocity plus the wind speed equal, basically equals your uh, indicated airspeed, how much, how much performance the airplane is capable of making. So if you have that 20-knot headwind, and then it goes to zero, well, you just lost 20 knots of your indicated airspeed. That's why that's important. So if you're climbing out right after liftoff, you're in a pretty critical, vulnerable state, I would say. You know, you're in a light aircraft, you're in the 50 to 60 knot range. Well, now you're down to 40, you know, so that can be critical. So you've lost all that performance and you have to adjust for that. Probably, if you're right after liftoff, probably going to hit the ground again. It may be pretty benign. And maybe you've gained the airspeed, bounce kind of right back, springboard into the air, and you have flying speed again, and, and you're good. It may be a momentary thing, all kinds of stuff. But if you're a little can, higher up, it could stall you, and then you don't have enough time to recover. If it's significant enough, um, you know, you start talking about like microburst type type things. You have so you have two different types of wind shear, and this is one thing you know I didn't ever really think about until you know I went you know to the airlines. 
And well, you have performance increasing wind shear and you have decreasing performance wind shear. So like, let's say, you know, you have like a microburst or some kind of downdraft. Let's call it a downdraft. And you're on the front side of the downdraft and you have increasing wind speed. Well, that's going to be, you're going to have like, let's say you're taking off and you have an increasing, or let's say you're on final because this is when we hate it the most. You're on final and you have, you get a wind shear. Uh, you know, transport category airplanes will tell you when you're experiencing wind shear. So you have an increasing performance, which would be, am- or uh, yeah, amber, and that you'd see an increase in performance. So an increase in indicated airspeed, which is going to be a power reduction. So you stay on speed. Well, the problem with that is, is you're probably going to get a follow-up decreasing. So you've flown through this downdraft on one side, it's increasing, but when you come out the other side, that turns into a tailwind, you lose the headwind. So now you've lost the airspeed. So you gained airspeed. What'd you do? You reduce power to get your airspeed back where it was. Well, then you come out the other side, you have, you lose the airspeed and now you're at a low power setting with a low airspeed. So that's the worst case scenario, especially at low altitudes, like on an approach or right after takeoff. So you're going to have to be really on it, put that power in, and we have a very specific wind shear um, recovery technique that is pretty universal across all transport category airplanes. But wind shear can be so bad, or microbursts you know, are kind of like a wind shear type thing. It can be so bad, it can exceed the performance capabilities of even jets. You could have a, dis- a descending, you know, like a microburst or a downdraft that exceeds you know, 3,000 or 6,000 feet a minute. So you're not going to outclimb that. You can, you know, you can be at sea level and you can have full power in and point that nose to the sky and you may not be able to, able to overcome the downdraft force or or recover from, you know, if you're at low altitude, so if we talk more about a just a straight kind of normal wind shear type event, if you lose 40 knots of wind, 20, 40 knots of wind, you have to turn that altitude into airspeed probably. Like on takeoff, you're already at max power. You know what I mean? For the most part, you're already at max power. In a light aircraft, you're already at max power. So the only thing you can do to restore that airflow is bring the nose down like breaking a stall. Use gravity to help you restore the airspeed. If you don't have any altitude to play with, you're hitting the ground. So that's that, that's things things to be things things to take into consideration. When you're taking uh, when you're taking off near thunderstorms, and wind shear is most prevalent near um, um, thunderstorms, uh, any fronts coming through, and temperature inversions. Well, that's your first mistake. Don't fly. Well, a, well, yeah, could be. Could definitely don't fly. Don't definitely don't fly when there's thunderstorms reported in the nope. area. Yep. Or a front rolling through. Or a front right. rolling through. Yeah. I've never seen with a temperature inversion. That's what they say. Um, so if you're asked, you know, when when would you expect wind shear, thunderstorms, fronts, temperature inversions, those would be kind of the the the, the ones to get out there, the bullet points to cover. Um, but I've never seen it with temperature inversions. Typically, I, you know, I see it very smooth with temperature inversions. So it's kind of weird. But I know um, temperature dew point spreads. There is some. I'd have to I'd have to look it up. But there is some relationship to wind shear and temperature. Uh, dew point spreads, but I'm not sure what that is. So you'd have to look that up for more information. But there is some there is some correlation there. What I would say, if you are taking off, or if you decide to do a go around because of a wind shear, you're on final, let's say, and you lose 20 knots of airspeed, and 
you don't think it's safe to continue the approach. And again, aeronautical decision-making. Execute the go-around. But what I would say is don't, and this is something, like I said, we had a very, we have a very specific uh, recovery technique that is pretty much universal from what I've seen. I have four type ratings now, and they're all taught the same. Um, what you're going to do is obviously max power. And, and I'm going to talk about a very, a very simple airplane, let's say. So like a, a 172. Max power, but unlike a typical go around or something like that, you're not going to change your flap setting. Um, what you don't want to do is dump any lift. Now, I guess I should back up a little bit. And on a 172, a 150 would be a terrible one. You have way more drag available to you than you do power. You, your power can never overcome your 40 degrees of flaps. So that is something I would probably yeah, want you, to you go. Can, you can fly with 40 degrees of flaps. No, no, no. You can't just fly. You need to overcome the 20 knots of airspeed you just lost. Oh, yeah. Okay. And of course, you know, I'm, I'm saying 20 knots, you know, so maybe it's two knots and that's up to you to figure out. And I'm two knots yeah. who would even know. And obviously you've flown plenty when it's gusty. Who can tell the difference between gusty winds and wind shear and all this stuff. That that's, that's part of the thing. But if you have microburst type condition, which is when our wind shear um, alerting system in the airplane would kind of be set off. Who, that's when we're really thinking like, okay, this is going to be significant. This could be a 30 knot headwind to a 30 knot tailwind. So we've lost that, you know, all these things. So we just execute a go around and we don't reconfigure, meaning we don't put flaps up. We don't put gear up. We don't do any of that. We leave it the way it is, but we have an excess amount of thrust, a, a ton. So flaps 40 degrees to us. And we have our, the drag ratio of our flaps is not even close to what 150 is either. Cause we don't have, relatively large amount of flaps like the 150 does so you don't have the power to overcome it so the concept is is you need to you need to keep all of the lift that you can flaps 40 invariably creates more lift there's no doubt about that that's how it lowers the stall speed because it creates more lift at a lower angle of attack so the only problem is is you don't have the thrust required to maintain altitude or gain altitude like we do in, in, in a transport category aircraft. So that would be that I guess I, I kind of came in, you know, hard and heavy on that one saying, don't reconfigure in a G light GA airplane. You're probably gonna have to dump, you know, kind of the mnemonic is, you know, your first notch of flaps, let's say like in a, what do you have in the 150, five, 10, is it five, 10, or is it straight well, to 10, zero, 10, minor, 20, 30, 40? Mine are electric, so they can be whatever. Well, I know, but I but how is it how is it marked on the thing? Oh, it's marked 10, 20, 10, 30, every 10. Yeah. Okay. So probably the first 10 is very little drag, almost all lift. 20 is probably still mostly lift, but you're getting some drag too. 30 is probably mostly drag. 40, the from 30 to 40, you're probably getting very almost no lift benefit, but all drag benefit would be my guess. It would be something like that. The further the the higher the degree the more the balance shifts from lift to drag. So maybe 20 degrees in a 150 with full power on a uh, recovery would probably be somewhat adequate. Maybe 30. You're dumping, you want to dump minimal lift, but get rid of drag. So that is a decision you have to make. We have enough excess thrust. We don't want to dump any lift. 
We have all, we don't even put the gear up. We don't, you, uh, because the time it takes for you to, let's say in a 150 single pilot for you to divert your attention from flying the airplane, riding the airspeed as best you can to do everything you can to eke out every ounce of energy, escaping this potential wind shear, smacking the ground, the attention span for you to go select a flap lever and watch where that lever goes is going to far outweigh your attention that you can pay to watch that airspeed indicator and maximizing the energy uh, expenditure on the airplane. Yeah. I usually leave the gear gear down. I I meant to say flaps. I don't know what I said, but I meant to say (laughs) flaps. Yeah. You almost always leave the gear down at 150. Yeah. I don't, I can't remember ever bringing the gear up. Did I say just then gear or flaps? I don't know. I don't know. I just, Oh, okay. I was just being stupid. Okay. Well, yeah, I would. I would say just. I felt like after all your, all all your informative information over the last hour, somebody had to say something stupid. That's a good good balance. We like to be a balanced program here. I'm sorry if I hadn't said enough stupid stuff this episode. Lee's been like, (laughs) Lee's been really teaching you a lot of stuff, which is great. It's great, but I feel like I haven't really done my job of. Randomly throwing out a stupid comment. Yeah, the the margarita at dinner I thought would have. No, I, yeah, I thought it, margaritas are gross. Don't get them. Yeah, I'm not a tequila like, fan. I can't do it. No, I, I well, I hate tequila. tequila. I used to like margaritas, but I went to dinner at a Mexican restaurant and I thought oh, I'll have a margarita. And then like after that, I was like, I don't even want to drink anymore. It's gross. It yep. does the same thing to me. Same thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's like. It just it just ruined my mood. What what, like, what I don't get though is some people are like, "Hey, let's do tequila shots." I'm like, "That's I can't, oh, God, so can't even gross. Stand it in a mixed fruity so drink." So gross. You want to do no. shots? Well, it's because you're not having the right type of tequila. No, tequila tequila is disgusting. There's there's yeah. two types of people that order tequila: actual Mexicans who grew up on it and like it, and people who don't know any better and they think it's cool. <laughs> those are the strong, only two types only two types of people stat. that drink it like if you grew up on it and that's what you drank growing up because that's all you had around you like okay I get it but then there's the people that's like oh tequila's cool so I'm gonna drink tequila shots and meanwhile everybody at the bar that you're buying shots for hates you right they hate you so much yeah Oh man, have you guys seen uh, the show Silicon Valley on HBO? Uh huh. Oh, there's this little billionaire, he's um nut job who's he makes a tequila called Three Commas. It's because a billion has three commas in it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. so he oh, makes nice. a tequila brand called Three Commas, and then he some investment goes bad and he's like has only has like 900 some million in the bank and he goes to this, this depression because he lost one of his commas it's pretty funny <laughs> made me think of that anyway all right mr griffin what is the last of the the section for part two this is this is the last one. It should be short and sweet and not much to it, but it's a guy wire avoidance. And this is probably more, you know, a helicopter thing or a um, maybe a seaplane thing. Um, just because, you know, you're operating 
more often from a, um, a lower altitude in maybe areas where a typical airplane wouldn't operate. But um, what I have here, uh, when you have a high row of um, uh, tension wires or antenna towers, you should fly over the towers instead of the wires because, you know, there are oftentimes associated wires or guy wires that, that maybe you can't see. They're so thin that you don't see them. So if you can see the towers, make sure you're flying above the tower, um, above the al- altitude-wise, above the tower, um, not under what you expect to be the or what you think is the lowest wire. You may not see wires that are there. You know, they droop, they hang. Um, there's, you know, other sets of wires. So fly above the towers. Uh, um, one, and one thing about this that might, that is kind of a, uh, um, um, I never really thought about, but you typically can't see when you have like a, a row of high tension uh, lines um, or, or any electric lines, you can't see, you can see them really well when you're on the same side of the wire as the sun, because that's where the reflection. So you can be flying at them and the sun is behind you and you would see the wires very well. But the, the answer is fly above the tower. The above, above the height of the tower. It's the very tower, simple. Ho- the tower holding the wires. You, the, you know the, anybody? Yeah, t- you know anybody that's ever hit any wires? Um, I think I do. I've heard stories. No. Um, but nothing. Yeah. Uh, nothing, nothing substantiated. Nothing, yeah. Never seen it yourself, but never seen it myself. No, but I've I've heard I've heard the stories. Yeah, I've heard some stories too. Probably the same story. Probably. Probably, but I mean, remote operations, I can see this being a huge thing. I mean, you'd have to be low. How tall are these towers? But if you're landing, you know, on a seaplane, on a river or something like that, you know, and these wires go from one side of the river to the other, you might not see them. So keep an eye out. I learned this doing, I did a powered parachute uh, lesson. I wish I remember the gentleman's name. He operates up in like Martha's Vineyard, I think, or somewhere up Virginia during the summer. (laughs) summers and then it's down outside of orlando in the winter and i went uh i went up with him for like an intro flight and we were buzzing these cow pastures outside of orlando like right on the deck and doing all because there's there's another reg i'll want to get into at some point with somebody who knows more about that stuff than i do but, um weight shift control and uh, uh powered parachute have different altitude restrictions so you can like legally go down lower which is what we were doing out, out in these cow pastures in middle of nowhere and uh, we come across those wires, and he's like, "Yeah, we got to obviously go up. You should never fly under wires, period. But in a powered parachute, you've got your all your rigging going up, so it's even more dumb to do this. So, so you go over them. But we we're we we're going over the towers. We're getting our our carriage over the actual tower of the wires, and not we weren't crossing wires. What's the, unless it was dead over a tower? What's the well, and legality? That, and so that's that's the actual." Hold on, hold on, Scott. That is the actual real, real point because there is a thin wire that you typically can't even see. You can, like, let's say you can see the big, thick wire, the droop, and you want to, like, fly right over top of it. There are sometimes very thin wires that are much thinner gauge than the actual wires, uh, you know, they have the electricity or whatever going through them that you won't even be able to see. So, you can see the droop of the wire, and you're like, oh, I'll just fly over the wire. I can see it. But there is possibly a, a taut wire going from each tower, and it's almost 
like laser beam straight and flat. Yep. So if, if you want to pick to go over the wire or the tower, go over the tower. You know there's nothing above the tower. That's what you're trying of, to say, right? Yeah, the top of the tower is the highest yeah. wires could be elevated. And that thin wire that is too thin to see is also lighter than the heavier wires and does not droop as much. So it's going to be, um, in a lot of cases, a lot higher than the wires that have some sag in them between the towers. Yeah, yeah, that's what I meant. So. Mr. Boris, you were I, yeah, sorry, dude. Rev, revved what's, up. What's the, uh, as far as legal, flying underneath wires, is, that, is there any circumstances where that's legal? Grand Theft Auto, I did it a lot when I played that when I was a kid. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think, you know. I can't remember where so, it was. It was driving somewhere, road trip somewhere. I can't remember. But it was what appeared to be a grass strip. Now it could have just been power lines. Yeah, it, maybe it was just some guy that liked a lot. Of, he liked a really nice long grass strip in his field that he liked to mow and whatever. But in the middle of it was power lines, so like obviously it wouldn't be that hard to do because near the middle of the runway, you're not going to be at power line height. You could land before it take off after it you know unless you do go around this gentleman well, i was just about to say this gentleman shared scott's sentiment yeah he doesn't have to go around uh, yeah to uh to an extent mr boris doesn't even have that yeah no oh. but i just wondered like if that was legal or i mean i assume before. it's his it's his private it's own private property so he can do what he wants with it but i would say as a general rule of thumb there's no reason to fly under wires. No, but yes. let's say you let's say you well, own. Let me okay. let me answer this though real quick. I think this will answer your question, Scott. All of the obstacle clearance stuff that we always talk about. Preface all of that with what is except what is necessary for takeoff and landing. So any obstacle clearance requirements we ever talk about, there there is a basically a kind of a whatever a qualifying statement meaning accept what is necessary for takeoff and landing. So yeah. you can be closer to things, be lower, all that stuff for takeoff and landing because they know eventually so, you have to lose altitude if you want to land. So right. So it's legal. What he's you know Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Takeoff and landing, yeah, when you're the power lines. Now of course, you know, if if it were a a um if it if he wanted to get it charted, so if this individual if it was a grass strip, which we don't know, but it just it looked it, it looked more like just like God, it's got a farm and it uh, one fifty or one seventy two in his barn. Yeah, you know that if he wanted that to get charted and be like an an airport on the sectional, he would have that probably would not meet their criteria for their obstacle clearance criteria. My guess is from looking at it, he probably had his strip there before they put the power lines through, but I don't know, maybe. Maybe not, but who knows on that? I mean, if it serves his purposes and he doesn't want it on the chart, I think that that's great. I mean, you probably got to, I mean, it's probably sweet unless you have to do it yeah, go around, I mean, which, which nothing like Rob said, don't go under the power lines, but if he's super familiar, I, I don't know, just do the, do a very low go around, almost do like a strafing run type go right, around yeah, yeah, and stay well, put underneath. your wheels, put your wheels right down the runway and, yeah, 
Yeah, it'd be ten feet off the ground. Yeah, I don't know why that would be. Well, I don't know what your what your reasoning was for doing the go around that that wasn't an acceptable outcome. But well, there's a deer on the runway. If you stay ten perfect. feet off the runway, you're fine. Yeah, unless the deer jumps. Well, it's probably not going to jump. Smack it in the head with a wheel and yeah. got some meat in your freezer. Wow, that's perfect. Good, good idea. <laughs> good idea. It's a great way to aerial aerial deer hunting. <laughs> not with a not with a gun with the wheels. Just fly Ooh. around, fly around the country and try to hit them in the head with your wheels. <laughs> That's an all new sport. I just feel a new sport coming in. Yep. Just got to grow the show a little more in twenty twenty one, and we'll get this started. All right, that um, wraps up. We got through the official emphasis areas. After after this is just pure Lee Griffin mystery meat of uh, what he decided to throw in that he taught his students prior to their private pilot check ride. Um, we. We got emails for this. Uh, we had five emails was the requirement, which mm-hmm. we handedly handily got. Uh, they rolled in very quick. Uh, this one we are going to make mix it up a bit. If you want part three, you want to get into the mystery meat portion of the Lee Griffin's list here. Uh, ten emails uh, requesting to Mr. Griffin to continue for a part three. You got to be specific now because we don't want to get confused with the old episode. Mm-hmm. You got you to specify, make make part three to uh, Lee Griffin. And we're going to add a twist. I just made this up just now. If you don't want us to continue, send it to uh, Scott Boris. Send emails to Scott Boris saying you do not want this to continue uh, anymore. And uh, each one of those will, will void one of the ones coming in. So we'll play a little... Little back and forth game here. Wow, we'll so. never know. <laughs> okay, okay. I don't know. Yep. I'll edit that last part out if I don't like it. Well, I'm so let, let me say this: so a teaser. The very next one is incidents versus accidents. Just a little teaser for everybody. Oh man, teasing incidents okay. versus accidents. Yeah, yeah. That could be interesting. Um, this wraps up our uh, our first season. Um. We'll go, uh, what do we do? Email? We don't have any comments, I don't think, to read right now. Scott, you got an email? Did you want to read or not? Or did you not want to read that? Oh, uh, some guy wanted me to sell. uh, What do you want me to sell? Powered paraglider. Mm, Yeah, yeah. Some guy wants to know if anybody's interested in uh, a uh, Nirvana Rodeo Dudek. Universal powered paraglider equipment. Wow. Okay, was... so not only we're we're now I guess Aero Trader. Um, if you yeah. have any interest in that? Just email Scott Boris and I'm Scott. You you can make that connection. I guess. Yeah, yeah. I guess I might Scott's read my email. Two guy for that kind of stuff. I probably, I yeah, probably I won't. Know. Yeah, this guy says, "Hey Scott, I've been looking listening to your guys on uh, far aim podcast and thought thank you for listening to ask thank if you, you know any of if you know anyone looking for a killer deal on a ppg gear i am focusing on my check ride and airplane so if anybody needs some ppg gear let me know got uh scott lee are deathly afraid of that stuff I'm, ppg yeah, i'm not i'm not yeah. so into well, it I'm not afraid of it. I'm, I'm not against PPG. 
I mean, I'm okay. not against it either. It's just not what I'm going to mm-hmm. go spend my time and money to do. And it sounds like this individual isn't going to either. So he's he's in my camp. Good luck I on like, your check ride, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Um, yeah. I don't like the fact you can't log it towards stuff, which is why I prefer Power Parachute that actually has an end number on it and like Power Parachute. You can log, but Power Paraglide you cannot. Yes, that's weird. I think we've talked about this before, and we I probably have. But, up, but it just seems weird. It does seem it does seem backwards to me as well. Right. So the powered, powered paraglider, that's the one that it's got like you have like the trike type thing on the bottom. Powered paraglider, you can add little trike stuff on it, but it, for the most part, it's your leg is your landing gear. So it's like a hang glider. Right. It's got uh, like a, right? it's like a, it's no, like a glider. It's, it's, it's a well, parachute. It's, but okay, it's, so a, it's a powered parachute. It's a rectangular parachute, right? Um, Powered parachute. There's, I mean, PPG Tucker got does Tucker got is a YouTube video um, that I've, I, I subscribe to on YouTube um, for years now is a good, um, interesting videos to watch, especially if you're interested in the, uh, the powered paragliders um, for the most part, I don't know what the differentiating factor is, but power paragliders for the most part, you're just got a fan strapped in your back with a parachute above you. And your feet or your landing gear. There is stuff that, like Tucker got did a couple videos where he's got a trike on it, so he's using that equipment to like run a little trike. But there's no like N number on board. Uh, powered parachutes more like a beefier uh, trike cage setup. You actually have an N number um, if you have the. You can get up to a private pilot's license in powered parachute. And if you're running a powered parachute like with an end number on it with lights, you can fly at night, which is something you cannot do with a para- powered paraglider. And um, you cannot log any of the time on a powered paraglider towards anything that matters. Whereas a powered parachute, um, from my understanding, uh, I've had conversations with a few people on it. You could you could log it. Uh, powered parachute time like towards your 1500 for like an airline transport pilot certificate which is kind of scary there's nothing in the regs that i have found that would prevent you from doing that so, so the difference is is one is a light support aircraft and the other one's an ultralight okay is that is the, what i'm understanding the fine so that, line well that is uh, yeah so like the powered parachute can be you know heavier than an ultralight which makes sense. I mean, I, I'm looking at a picture of one. It's like, man, the powered paraglider is enormous. Yeah. Which doesn't make sense. Hold on. Yeah, that's actually... I'm sorry. The powered parachute is much bigger than the powered paraglider, which makes sense because it, it, it's an over-ultralight. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so that makes sense. So, yeah. Wow. Right, Interesting. I'd have to do more reading on it, of course. You know, they look very similar. All the concepts, conceptually, they're very similar in concept. So I have to do a lot more research on it. That's very, very interesting. I still not for me, but now, um, yeah. So wraps up that email. Um, not okay. I don't know how I feel with people sending us emails to try to sell stuff on the show. I don't know if whatever (laughs) I'll take, we'll take whatever we'll, we'll, we'll filter through them. 
So might might be the last one we uh, we read on the air. Uh, I said maybe genre. don't read it on the air. I say edit it out. <laughs> no, Respond to him. Okay. I'll leave this one in just kind of as a, a general rule with the emails. Oh, God. Um, we're the classified ads now. Jesus Christ. Yeah, we're not, not going in that direction, but we do appreciate the email. Um, mm-hmm. Good luck on your, your private check, right? That's awesome. For sure. And um, that's going to, yeah, that wraps up the uh, 2020 season. Uh, there'll be three week hiatus here, robertberger.com live. We're going to do some sort of live component. We're going to start recording these. Uh, getting ahead on 2021 if you are wanting to um, listen to some show stuff or be a part of the program live robertberger.com live there's like an email list sign up thing basically i'm gonna when i we've got all the details hammered out email how we're gonna do it and then when we're gonna record give as much of a heads up as we can on that email list um, so you can have you know see if it works in your schedule or not uh, if you're not interested in, if you're not interested in any of that uh, the show will continue as normal through your uh, through whatever device app setup you're listening to the show now that, that'll continue into 2021 so no worries if you're not interested in the live component email is our preferred method of communication my email is farAIM at robertberger.com uh, B-E-R-G-E-R is the German way, not the sandwich way. Mr. Griffing is F-A-R-A-I-M at LeeGriffing.com, G-R-I-F-F-I-N-G. And Scott is F-A-R-A-I-M at ScottBoris.com, B-O-R-E-S. And um, yeah, can't believe how large the show has gotten from our expectations when we first started this thing at the beginning of the year um that's all because of you the listener we we can't thank you enough it's crazy what 2020 might bring we'll uh continue to do our best to uh keep the show going get better and better at doing this i feel like we have improved a little bit so that's a good sign slightly uh over 50 episodes we've got a slight improvement we've really recorded this is the 52nd time we've done this. We scrapped a couple because they were so bad. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, we're 52. We, we got, I think, a little bit of a grasp on it. Yeah, that's all I got to wrap up the season. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, well, I just echo, yeah. echo the same sentiments. Thanks so much. It's all because you guys, you know, I mean, the success has been crazy. I mean, the amount of emails we're getting is way more than I would have thought. And you know the, the listenership and the number of downloads it's crazy it's crazy we yep. appreciate you guys we do appreciate it. and when we do hit a hundred thousand downloads which seems like it's coming way faster than i thought it would for a brand new podcast that's independent without any other stuff going on we are going to do that the the flying rager uh yes. at the, uh, the 88 delta which rage I, I i watched the fire fest thing you, you mentioned on a, one of the previous episodes lee it's kind of what i'm shooting for with the quality of the flying so we're, we're gonna go with firefest uh level of uh of hosting the event is what i see it becoming <laughs> all uh, right so yeah, if you want a taste of what the flying might be like just was that a netflix i don't even yeah I don't yeah know. netflix yeah 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 fire f y how do they spell the f y r e yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, F I R E, yeah, F I or F Y R E, yeah. F Y R. We're just gonna call it the the fire flying, rage fest. Hopefully, there's no airplane. 
<laughs> Airplanes causing fires. Yeah, well, it's this misspelled yeah, whatever. fire, so we're whatever. good. Yeah. <laughs> Who cares? It's mainly going to be, we're going to put a barbecue grill at Scott's hangar and roast a goat. Get drunk. <laughs> yeah, just bring a tent. Get drunk. Yeah, get drunk. Yeah, show Don't up drunk. pitch the tent too close to the swan. It's mean. It's going to be um, a rage fest. <laughs> that's all right. That's, um, yeah. Thanks for listening. Take care, everybody. See you uh, in 2021. See you. Thanks, guys. Consequences of landing on like a, a closed runway. Might be a little well, off you have topic. To have a reason, you have to have a reason for doing it. What if nobody sees you do it? Like, is well, it, then there's is probably it, no consequences. Yeah. But it, I mean, is it like, <laughs> a, never is, know. It like a, is it like a big deal? Like if I were to go fly over to Kelly's and land on the uh, north, south. north, south, north, south, would anybody even care? Yes. Um, who would, I would say don't would do care? that because you have probably a higher probability the people that live on that runway. Yeah, but would they even always would they even right care? In. Really? Yes, they would care. I, I, that's what I. That's the first thing I said. Why oh, do yeah. they care though? I don't know. They, they got nothing like better to do. But let's say yeah. let's say it's like a let's say it's a crazy wind out of the north or the south that you shouldn't have been going to like, that airport. You shouldn't have been going to that airport. I would imagine the north let's south say, of LA hasn't been treated well in a while so it's probably like got potholes and stuff it does it anyway. you know it does but but you could still use it it's not unusable it's not smooth by any an, means but it's not unusable if there's an if there's an airport that you or a runway that you want to use that is that you wouldn't get caught on that is not the one i would pick because i i would say you probably have almost a hundred percent chance of I guess they wouldn't necessarily know who it was if you did like a touch and go, maybe. That's ridiculous. I think well, I mean, I just... always thought so. Think of the countless times that I wish it would have been open with the wind. Right. Like the I can only imagine like why, why is it closed? Well, because the, <sighs> some of the, the glide slope, I thought, well, the way, I mean, basically, but the, at the end of the runway, um, the the kind of the uh, what is it called? Um, like the obstacle clearance slope, they, that also splays out at like two and a half degrees. So if you look at the end of the runway, 
and you take a two and a half degree cut angle outward, that is going to be included in your obstacle clearance plane or obstacle clearance slope. There's, you know, there's an area, you know, like a runway protection area that comes out there. Um, so if something falls within that, that means you have two choices. You either need to change the glide slope or shorten the runway. But the problem is if you shorten the runway, then more things can fall in it. So it's it's pretty particular. It's I mean, it's somewhat scientific because you don't want to shorten it or change things too much because then more things may fall into it and it may get worse for you. And then well, it's just kind of like shorten a, it. Why not just shorten it and let people that are comfortable on a short runway use it? Well, so, well, so, well, yeah, but but in this case, that would be a bad idea there because then more houses would fall into, or more uh, taller items, taller structures, taller trees may fall into that obstacle clearance plane, and then you have to further you have right. to, you can go one of two ways. You got to shorten it until you get the numbers you want, or l- lengthen. You know, it or I something. think I think they're just being cheap, and they don't want to resurface it or seal no, it. No, I know that they've. Well, yeah, but it's been this way for a long time now. Yeah, and why is it still uh, show 15, on the sectional that it's? That it has two runways. Is it on the sectional that has two runways? Well, well, my sectionals do, but my sectionals, <laughs> my sectionals got a sectional are, from 1996 that he's still using. No, they're from 2006. Uh, <laughs> man, 2006 seems that seems pretty recent. I'm showing one runway, but well, look uh, up a 2006 sectional. It's I can't two. do that. I don't. The sectionals, in my, those anymore, the sectionals in my plane show it having two. Did we? I mean, not the one that's up to date and current that I keep in the glove box, but yeah, the other right. ones. So back to aeronautical decision. The spare ones that I a, have in the back. Get a current sectional chart if you're going to go fly somewhere. That's I'll have like a little interlude if I can't cut it right. Uh, Mr. Griffin wrapping up aeronautical decision making from Scott's yeah. part I cut out about Kelly's Island. I'm gonna land um, on that. One. Well, go ahead, go happens. ahead. You're just gonna get you're gonna get caught, and then okay. I'll tell them your tail number. No, I'm joking. Let's see go what ahead. happens. I've always wanted to. I've always wanted to. So tell me how it goes. GoPro it or something. 